If you have your copies of God's Word, please turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. We continue this morning in our series in the Gospel of John, and this morning we will, God willing, uh, conclude the first chapter as we consider together verses 35 through 51. Please follow along as I read John 1, verses 35 through 51. The next day, again, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you and you were under the fig tree, I do. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. He said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray once more. Our Father, please come by your Holy Spirit now and open up your word to us. We pray, Father, that you would enable each one of us to see in our hearts by faith your Son, the Lord Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of the living God and that you would give to each one of us the gift of faith that we might believe in him and have that which you've promised, everlasting life. Do this not only for our good, but for the glory of your son, the Lord Jesus. For we pray in his name, amen. I don't know about you, but as you read a passage like this, the calling of the first disciples, uh, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ yourself, you immediately sort of put yourself in the experience of these first disciples. We might ask, what must it have been like uh, to experience the sorts of things these early disciples experienced and to hear the sorts of things they heard from Jesus and then to make the sort of professions that they made in this passage? We just immediately sort of put ourselves in that world and in that experience. Uh, well, this morning, though it would be very interesting to consider what the experiences of these first disciples were like, we're actually not going to consider the experience of the disciples so much uh, as we are going to look at what they say themselves through their professions of faith about who Jesus Christ is. Uh, because I believe uh, John, the brilliant writer that he is, 
has deliberately positioned uh, these accounts of the uh, uh, introduction of the first disciples and the things they say about Jesus. He's positioned them deliberately here at the outset of the gospel to tell us something about who Jesus is. And it's important that we remember the overall purpose and argument of John's gospel at this point, which is recorded for us in John 20, verse 31. These things, this book, has been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so what I think John is doing here in these verses that we've just read together is he's recording these early statements from the disciples as a way of introducing what is the major theme of the entire gospel, that he is the Christ, He's the one who Moses and the prophets wrote of. He's the son of God. He's the king of Israel. He's the son of man. There's something being said to us about who Jesus is this morning. And if we get too caught up into the life circumstances and experiences of these early disciples, we run the risk of missing what I think is the main point of the passage, and that is to tell us something about the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. Now that said, uh, there are in this text a number of helpful principles about discipleship and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I, I don't want us to just gloss over those and miss them, even though I don't think that's the main purpose of the passage. And so uh, here at the beginning of the message, I'm just really going to state briefly uh, three lessons in this text we learn about what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And then we'll spend the rest of our time considering these great ascriptions and titles these disciples give to Jesus as a way of establishing who he is. So right here up front, just so I can can say that I did it. Uh, Let's consider three discipleship principles from John uh, chapter one, verses 35 through 51. Three simple truths here at the beginning about what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And the first one is by far the most important. To be a disciple of Jesus means to follow him. To be a disciple of Jesus means to follow him. These first disciples are summoned to follow Christ. That's what makes them disciples. They're following the master. They're following the teacher. They're following Jesus. My favorite description of what it is to be a Christian is to be a Christ follower. That's always where I start. If someone asks me, what does it mean to be a Christian? I say, it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be his disciple, and to give your life over to him, and to be a lifelong follower of him. This certainly includes repentance and faith and baptism, but a lot more than that. It includes obeying Jesus' commands and embracing his way of life. It means, as Matthew tells us in chapter 11, taking his yoke upon us and learning from Jesus and embracing all of his promises and all of his precepts and embracing even the radical calls to discipleship. This is all part of what it means to be a disciple. It is to be a Christ follower. And to be a Christ follower your whole life long. To be a disciple is to be a lifelong follower of Christ. And therefore, to make a disciple is to make a lifelong follower of Christ. Now, this is really important if you're familiar with uh, what we often refer to as the Great Commission, which we would understand to be essentially the mission of the church. As it's recorded in Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. That's the main command. Make disciples of all peoples baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. If to be a disciple is to be a lifelong follower of Christ, then to make a disciple as we are commanded is to make lifelong followers of Jesus. 
Now this is a point that is increasingly important for me to stress. We have to have the right understanding of what a disciple is because there's a lot of uh, uh, ministry, and we could say kingdom work being done uh, in an effort to make disciples, but there's a completely different understanding of what that command entails and what a disciple is. To make a disciple is not necessarily to uh, get someone to fill out a card that they've decided to be a Christian. To make a disciple is not walking down an aisle and praying the sinner's prayer. To make a disciple is not even to get someone to agree to be baptized. Now this is really relevant and really important. Quite routinely, I hear people summing up the disciple-making process as baptizing people. So you'll hear churches or ministries uh, say something like, we measure our success uh, by how many baptisms we produce. I just want to state that's a very troublesome measure for success. I can just plainly make that case empirically so very easily. Do you know that most people who have been baptized with some sort of Christian profession are not in church today? Can we really say we're making disciples just because we baptize people? If most of those people today are not even among God's people uh, sitting under the yoke of his word and learning from him, what we need to do is redefine our categories. To be a disciple is not just to be baptized. That might be one part of it, but it is to be a lifelong follower of Jesus. And I'll just say, I don't think we can say discipleship has even started until one has begun to follow Christ. Here's what I mean by that. You routinely hear these sorts of testimonies. Uh, when I was six years old, I became a Christian. I was born again. I, I, uh, uh, at least, that's what my mom says. Uh, I, was, I heard a sermon or something or a lesson and I was afraid of hell and I went to her and she took me to the sinner's prayer and that's when I became a Christian. That's when I was saved. I didn't really start following Christ then. You know, as I got older, you know the teenage years, high school and college, it's a very sinful period of life and, and, and I just kind of lived like the world. But then when I was uh, 29 and I started my family, that's when I really started following Christ. Now I'll just give you the official um, maybe the unofficial Emmanuel Church opinion on that type of testimony. Uh, you, you are not a Christian if you're not a follower of Christ. And discipleship entails following after Jesus. That's the gospel call. That's what Jesus says to these first disciples. Follow me. And I would say discipleship has not begun. The Christian life has not begun until we've begun following after Christ. We need to redefine these categories. And this is important here for any of you who are believers and not Christians and not followers of Christ, you have to understand part of becoming a Christian is so much more than signing a card or signing up for a ministry or agreeing to be baptized. It is to give your life fully over to the Lord Jesus and trusting him in faith to save you from your sins and to commit yourself to follow hard after Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple, to follow him. It is to be a Christ follower. That's the main principle I think we see here in the text. But two more that I'll share. Secondly, to be a disciple of Jesus means you have been given eyes to see Christ for who he is. To be a disciple of Jesus means you have been given eyes to see Christ for who he is. Verse 39, Jesus says to Andrew and the other disciple, come and you will see. Verse 46 Philip said to Nathanael, come and see. Jesus said to Nathanael in verse 50, you will see greater things than these. And we see this sort of thing happening 
uh, many times throughout John's gospel, and that is that, that Jesus is communicating on one level up here, and, and the people he's talking with are down here communicating on an earthly level, and he's constantly trying to get people on his level of communication. So John 3, for example, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And he thinks, how am I gonna crawl inside my mother's womb and be born a second time? And he says, no, no, I'm not talking about that. You're down here, you need to come up here where I am. I'm talking about being born of the Spirit of God. John 4, the woman at the well. You're telling me that you have found a place where there's a spring of water so I don't have to come back here to this well and draw every day, I can just have a spring of water? No, I'm not talking about a dry mouth and quenching thirst in that sense. Jesus says, I'm living water, come up here to where I am, where I'm communicating. I have living water so that your soul will never thirst again. You can have eternal life. John 6, for example, the crowds come to Jesus and they want bread. Moses gave us manna in the wilderness. What are you gonna give us? Our stomachs are growling, we're hungry people. Jesus says, I'm the true bread who came down from heaven. You eat my flesh, you drink my blood, you'll have everlasting life. Well, I think Jesus is doing something of that in our text this morning. So Andrew says uh, to Jesus, uh, Master, where, where are you staying? And Jesus says, come and you will see. And Andrew thinks like, I'm gonna go to an address. Right, I'm gonna find out where this rabbi lives. But I think Jesus has so much more in mind there. Come and you will see that I am the Christ, the Son of God. You will see me for who I am. He's inviting him into a lifelong discipleship relationship to see Jesus, to see him for who he is as the Christ, as the one the Old Testament scriptures anticipated, as the Son of God, as the King of Israel. You will see me to be the Christ, the Son of God, if you come to me. To be a disciple entails seeing Jesus for who he is. The third and final discipleship principle. To be a disciple of Jesus entails inviting others to come and see. To be a disciple of Jesus entails inviting others to come and see. Is it not striking how each of these men, upon seeing Christ, just have to find someone else? and to tell them to come also and see. Andrew just had to find Peter. Philip just had to find Nathaniel. You need to come and see this one we found. We found the Christ, he's here. Come and see what I have seen. I wonder, have we lost something of that as followers of Christ? If you're like me, some of you, when you first became a Christian, you can remember such explosive evangelistic zeal. You just wanted to tell everybody about what Jesus had done for you. And you just wanted to bring people to a Bible study or to a class or to a service or to consider the scriptures together or go through a book because you had seen something marvelous and wonderful. You had found Jesus Christ. You just had to find your brother or your sister, your mother, your father, your friend, your roommate. Come, come to my Bible study. Come to my small group. Come to my church. I want you to see what I've seen. I found hope, I found life, I found light that has broken into my darkness and I want you to have that as well. Do we need to recover that? There was a time when I didn't really see evangelism as really one of the basic facets of discipleship. I thought that some were just really gifted at that, that was their unique area of ministry and that other disciples have different areas of giftedness and ministry. I don't think that anymore. I think that this is a basic aspect of Christian discipleship. As those who have seen Christ for who he is, we are those who invite others to come and see what we have 
seen. And that's what these first disciples did. Well, there you have it, three principles of discipleship here in our text. Just had to consider those briefly. But now I want to look at these statements about Jesus, and I do think this is the main point of the passage here, the main purpose that John has for us. He's positioning these professions on the lips of the disciples to introduce to us who Jesus is. So this is the question, who is Jesus? We have four answers given to us in this text from the lips of the disciples. First of all, we see that Jesus is the Messiah, which means Christ. And we have these words from the lips of Andrew. Jesus is the Messiah, which means Christ. Look with me, if you will, at verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. The words Messiah and Christ are essentially synonyms. They mean the same thing. They refer to the anointed one, or the chosen one, or in some places, the coming one. So God's anointed in the Old Testament, for example, that word was used, it often had kingly overtones. So God's anointed is the one appointed to rule over God's people. It can also refer to God's priest, the one anointed to intercede between God and sinful man. It can even refer in some places to God's prophet, the one anointed by God, appointed by God to speak on behalf of God and represent him to his people. In each case, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one is God's special authorized agent who represents God. And though there were various anointed ones in the Old Testament, like King David, for example, or even King Saul before him, who's said to be the Lord's anointed as king, or Aaron the priest, who also was anointed to intercede between God and the covenant people, though there were many anointed ones in the Old Testament, still the Israelites were anticipating a coming anointed one who would fulfill all of these offices for God's people, the office of prophet and priest and king. The Jews of that day were looking for the coming one, the chosen one, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, God's ultimate and final representative. So we shouldn't be surprised. John 4, the woman at the well, says to Jesus, "We, we know, sir, that Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Why does she say that? She's expecting this coming one, this anointed one who will speak on behalf of God. And Jesus says to her, verse 36, I who speak to you am he. Messiah is here. The anointed one has come. The chosen one, the promised one, the coming one is here with you. And apparently Andrew, here in our text in chapter 1, believes he has found the Messiah. Who knows how much time he had spent with Jesus, but he just has to run and find his brother Simon Peter and say, we have found the Messiah. The coming one is here. Can you imagine what that would have been like? The longed for, anticipated, anointed Christ who was coming into the world, now he's here. So first of all, Jesus is said to be the Messiah Christ. Secondly, we read that Jesus is the one of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus is the one of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. And we get these words from the lips of Philip. Look with me at verse 43. 
The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now if you see the word law by itself to reference the Old Testament scriptures, if it's just by itself, it's usually referring to what's called the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. That was considered the law section of the Old Testament. And if you saw the prophets, again, on their own, that was a reference to the prophetic books of the Old Testament. However, when you see those words together, the law and the prophets, that's usually shorthand for the entire collection of Old Testament books, the 39 books of the Old Testament that we have today. And so Jesus, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He's referring to the whole word of God there in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, here in our text, I understand Philip to be doing the same thing. When he refers to the one Moses wrote about and the prophets also spoke, he is in effect saying the whole Old Testament was about this man, Jesus of Nazareth. The whole Old Testament anticipated the coming of this one, and we found that one. Moses was writing about and who the prophets also spoke about. Now what all Philip has in mind and how he arrived at that conclusion we're not told. But this view he has we know is shared by Jesus himself. For he says it in John chapter 5. Let me just ask you to turn over a couple pages to John chapter 5. In John 5 Jesus is talking to a gathering of Jews who do not believe in him and he calls to the stand various witnesses to the fact that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. And even last week, we mentioned John the Baptist. He's one of the witnesses that Jesus calls upon. You, you uh, were willing to listen to John. He was a bright and shining light, and, and you, you basked in that light for a time. He was a witness about me. But now picking up in verse 36, let's see some of the other witnesses that Jesus calls to the stand. He says, verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John the Baptist, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. You see all these miraculous things I'm doing? That should be an indication to you that I am the Son of God. Verse 37, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. God the Father had borne witness that this was his son. Perhaps that was in Jesus' baptism where the Spirit descends upon him. We don't know. But now verse 39 is the main verse I want us to look at. Jesus then says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus calls to the stand another witness. He says, you're combing through the scriptures. You think in there you have eternal life, but you're missing the whole point. The scriptures, and right now we're only talking about the Old Testament. The New Testament scriptures have not been written. He says, the Old Testament scriptures, they're bearing witness to me, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the Son of God. The whole Old Testament, Jesus understood to be anticipating him and pointing to him. He would say, yes, Philip, that's exactly right. Moses was speaking about me. The prophets were speaking about me. The whole Old Testament in some way anticipated the coming of Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, I'll just pause here and ask, should that change the way you read the Old Testament? 
in your morning devotions. The Old Testament is not just an aimless collection of fables and stories that we tell our children. It's a unified testimony pointing to the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how Philip understood it, and that's how Jesus himself understood it. Listen, friends, a Christless Old Testament gets us nowhere. You read the Old Testament, you don't see Christ there, you're wasting your time. Jesus Christ himself understood the whole Old Testament to be pointing to him and bearing witness to him. And if you don't see that witness or receive that witness, you're not reading the Old Testament right. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the Christ, the Son of God, the coming one. Well, Philip says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. You might say even in the law section, even in the Pentateuch, was that about Jesus as well? Philip understands it to be so. Jesus understands it to be so. Perhaps one passage that Philip had in mind, I think I referenced it last week in Deuteronomy 18. There Moses says this, verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, Jews of John chapter 5, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. There in the law, Moses is telling of this prophet to come. He's writing about Jesus. And certainly we have a great deal of material in the prophets, right? Philip says the prophets also wrote about this coming one, this anointed one. Take the prophet Isaiah, for example. Martin Luther, the great reformer, was so, uh, saw so much of Jesus in the prophet Isaiah, he was fond of referring to it as the gospel of Isaiah, like a fifth gospel account. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we see Jesus quoting passages in Isaiah and saying they refer to him. Take what he does in Luke 4, for example. I'll just read that account to you. It's striking. Luke 4, verse 16, Jesus, where we read this. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And then he quotes from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. You could feel the drama. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. <laughs> right? You can imagine, kids, if, if um, you know, basically here we have Jesus going to church, and uh, it's his turn to read the scripture reading. And he reads from Isaiah 61. You could imagine, like Mr. Lai Chow did this morning, he came up and read from the scriptures. Imagine if he came up this morning and opened Isaiah 61 and read these verses and said, yeah, this is talking about me. Can you imagine that? I hope we'd all throw garbage at Mr. Lai Chow and <laughs> storm the stage. Love you, brother. That's what Jesus does in this text. He stands up in the synagogue. 
he opens the scroll of Isaiah, turns to Isaiah 61, where it talks about the Lord's anointed, and he says, this is about me. Today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Messiah has come. The prophets were writing about me. Moses was writing about me. The scriptures bear witness about me. You are exactly right, Philip. I am the one that Moses wrote of and the prophets also spoke. All right, third, ascription given to Jesus. The first was that he is the Messiah, the Christ. The second, he's the one Moses and the prophets wrote about. Thirdly, Jesus is the Son of God and the King of Israel. The Son of God and the King of Israel. These words from the lips of Nathanael, picking up in verse 47 of chapter one. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus had never met him, knew all about him. Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. In some supernatural way, Jesus knew who Nathanael was before he ever came to him. Verse 49, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, where's Nathanael getting this? Why does he use those ascriptions? Son of God, King of Israel. And more than that, why does he use those two ascriptions together? I don't know about you, when I read that text, it's almost like he puts these two ideas in the same camp, same category. You're the Son of God, the King of Israel. If you're the Son of God, you're the King of Israel. If you're the King of Israel, you must be the Son of God. Now, if we wanted to see in the Old Testament that the coming Messiah was expected to be the Son or a Son of God, there's a handful of texts we could turn to. If we wanted to find texts to talk about the coming Messiah being the king of Israel, the promised seed of David, there's lots of texts we could turn to. But I think Nathaniel has these two terms together in his mind for a certain reason. And so there's a couple texts in the Old Testament I want to direct our attention to where these two ideas, son of God and king of Israel, are put together. One of these texts I'm certain was in Nathaniel's mind. It was a text that every single Jew would have had doggy-eared in their Bible, and that text is found in 2 Samuel 7. You don't have to turn there if you don't wish. But it's in 2 Samuel 7 that God makes a covenant with David, King David. And he tells of this coming seed of David who, whose throne will be established forever. You, David, you're going to die, but there's one coming after you, and I'll establish his throne forever. And, and this motif of the son of David, the king of Israel, this is the dominant motif in the rest of the Old Testament in terms of informing messianic expectation. So let me just read a few verses from that covenant that God made with David. And I think these verses would have been in Nathaniel's mind in putting together the son of God and the king of Israel. God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So we see king of Israel. This coming one will be the king over God's people. Then verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Where's Nathaniel getting this? King of Israel, son of God, going together? I'm sure he's at least getting it from 2 Samuel 7. This coming king will be a son of God. And then there's a second text in the Old Testament that I think was probably in Nathaniel's mind, though I'm not as sure. This text certainly would have been in the mind of the later apostles because it factors prominently in their gospel witness. And that's Psalm 2. Psalm 2, 
Let me read verses one through seven to you. Again, these ideas of king of Israel, son of God going together. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak. So there's a future orientation to these words. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Zion is a a reference to the uh, covenant people of God. And here God is saying, I'm going to set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He's talking about Jesus, who will be the king of Israel. And then verse 7, the son of God. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. The thing that says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You see how these Old Testament texts are flooding his mind and informing his ascriptions given to Jesus. He is the son of God. He is the king of Israel. Another text we could go to is a New Testament text that I'm sure Nathaniel knew nothing about, and it's in Luke chapter 1, where the angel says to Mary these words, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. So you got Son of God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will be the king of Israel. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now what exactly Nathaniel would have understood about these ascriptions, we don't know. I tend to think he did not understand them in their fullness. Did Nathaniel really understand what it meant that Jesus was the Son of God and the unique relationship he had with the Father and his two natures as fully God and fully man? I'm sure he probably did not understand that in its fullness at this time. Did he understand the nature of the kingdom that Jesus would establish? That it would not be an earthly kingdom, but that it would be a heavenly kingdom? Probably not. But what's happening here is something that we're going to see often throughout the Gospel of John. The disciples frequently spoke better than they knew. They didn't understand even the fullness at this point of what they were saying, what it meant that he was the Messiah, the one Moses wrote about, the one that the prophet spoke of, the Son of God, the King of Israel. But what exactly those titles mean is about to become clear as the book unfolds. All right, final ascription given to Jesus. Final one. Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of Man, and these words are from the lips of Jesus himself. Look with me again at verse 49. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What in the world is Jesus talking about? This is a very mysterious statement to me. What does he mean when he says, you can see the heavens opened up, angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man? You read the commentators, they don't have a clue what Jesus is talking about, okay? And there are just lots of opinions, lots of guesses, and uh, after hours and hours of contemplating this this week, I'm not sure I really understand it. 
There are a couple things I've become convinced of in studying these words from Jesus. I think that Jesus is working with two Old Testament allusions here, and he's merging them together. The first is found in Genesis 28. In Genesis 28, we have recorded the account of Jacob's ladder. So if you grew up in church, you might be familiar with that story. Let me read the account just to refresh your memory. Genesis 28, verses 12 through 17. And Jacob dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. He's reaffirming the Abrahamic covenant in these verses. Verse 15, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob will sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So what is Jesus doing here by calling to mind this Old Testament text and now saying, you're going to see heaven opened up, and you're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man? Well, clearly, this was a huge revelatory moment in the Old Testament. God is revealing himself in a special and supernatural way to Jacob, and he's reaffirming his covenant purposes to the people of Israel. And Jacob is so astonished by this dream, he calls it the, the, the house of God, the gate of heaven, where he has lied down that night. And Jesus somehow associates himself with this huge revelatory moment. I think he's saying revelation is here. I now am the gate of heaven. The angels of heaven are ascending and descending upon me. This is being fulfilled now. God is drawing near in the person of his son, and in his person of the son, the presence of God is going to be focus. Is he reaffirming the Abrahamic covenant, saying it's fulfilled in Jesus, perhaps? But at the very least, I think Jesus is identifying himself with this great revelation from heaven. The heavens are opened up, and now I am here, and the angels of God ascend and descend on me. I'm the focal point of God's presence. But then he refers to himself as the Son of Man. And here I think he's merging another Old Testament illusion. What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of Man? We use that phrase a lot. We have it in lyrics of some of our songs it's actually a very mysterious phrase. The, the meaning is not actually quite apparent. It's exclusively used by Jesus. It's his favorite uh, self-referential phrase. He says he's the son of man. He uses that phrase some 80 times. We don't see it on the lips of anyone else in the Gospels. Once we see it on the lips of uh, Stephen in Acts. But besides that, only Jesus uses that phrase to describe himself. What is he talking about when he refers to himself as the son of man? Well, I think along with a number of commentators and scholars, that Jesus is referencing Daniel chapter seven, verses 13 through 14. Let me read those verses for you. Daniel says this. I saw in the night visions, I'll just stop there. I thought of this late last night, made the connection that this great um, dream Jacob has, Genesis 20, it's a dream. 
It's something that's not actually happening. It's a dream. And here Daniel is seeing something in the night visions. He too is having a dream. I think we can see there that these hope-filled dreams find their fulfillment, their redemptive reality in Jesus Christ. But anyway, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And now in Jesus, the Son of Man has come. He is ushering in the kingdom. He comes on the clouds, and the people will come to him, and he will establish his kingdom forever. Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man, of Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. So put these two images together. In verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is merging this great dream, this great revelation from heaven, this great revelatory moment in Genesis 28, and he's saying revelation has come, fulfillment has come. And he's taken this great apocalyptic vision in Daniel chapter 7, and he says the Son of Man is here. And his dominion, his kingdom will be established, and you will see heaven opened up. And God himself revealed in the person of Jesus Christ who is the Son of Man. Jesus says to Nathaniel, you're impressed that I happen to know who you were before I ever met you? You ain't seen nothing yet. The Son of Man is here. You're gonna see heaven open up. I am the gate of heaven. And God's presence now dwells with man. What do we have in our passage this morning to sum up? These disciples have found the Messiah. And they have come to see him for who he is. And they have proclaimed themselves and testified to who he is. And they themselves follow after Jesus. Just short of 18 years ago, I found the Messiah. I found the one who Moses wrote of in the law. I found the one of whom the prophets also spoke. I found the Son of God, I found the King of Israel. I met the Son of Man at 676 Southwest 168th Terrace, Pembroke Pines, Florida, 33027, on a couch in a family room with a blue Trinity hymnal open in my lap to hymn number 370. The words say, we have heard the joyful sound, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Spread the tidings all around, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Bear the news to every land. Climb the steeps and cross the waves. Onward tis our Lord's command. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. And it was there that I heard from Jesus those blessed words. Follow me. There are a hundred other stories just like that in this room. You who are disciples of Christ, followers of the Lord Jesus, I hope you think often on these words from Jesus. His invitation, follow me, come and see. The one whom Moses wrote of in the law, the one of whom the prophets wrote. The son of God, the king of Israel, the son of man, even the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. And I encourage you, you who first followed Christ whenever you did so, think afresh on that command. It's renewed to you this morning. 
follow me. And to you who are not followers of Jesus, disciples of Christ, our word to you, not just mine, but the word of every Christian in this room, the word of the Apostle John and those first disciples is this. Come and see. Come and see. Hear those words of the woman at the well. She goes back to the town and says, come and see someone who knew everything about me, told me everything about my life. Nathaniel's saying the same thing. This man knows everything about me. He knows everything about you. And those of us who are followers of Christ and who are his disciples, we have seen him. We have beheld him. We've come to know him for who he is as the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we invite you to come and to see him and to have him and to know him by faith. Hear the words of Jesus this morning to you. Follow me. Become this morning a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ. That is his invitation, his summons to you. And if you come to him in repentance and faith, if you see him for who he is, he will save you and he will enable you to follow him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's precious to every heart here who is a disciple of yours to remember the sweetness of those words we first heard from you. Follow me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart, you'll find rest for your souls. We have found that to be true. Lord, none of us who are your disciples regret that decision to follow you. You've been faithful to us. You've been good to us. You have kept all of your promises to us, even though we have been so weak, so often prone to wander and prone to fail. But you've kept us in the way. And you even this morning renew that invitation to us. Follow me. Continue. Follow me. Continue to see me and to hold me by faith. For I am holding you. Continue. Follow me. We pray, Father, that you would move upon the hearts of those in this room who are not followers of Christ. We want them to see the Messiah, to see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and to believe on him in repentance and faith. Open their eyes even now to see Jesus. And would you speak sweetly to them those words you spoke to these disciples all those years ago? Follow me. We thank you that Jesus is a Savior for sinners. And he is a kind and gracious master. We love him so much. We pray in his name. Amen.